Colossians chapter 1, we're going to start in verse number 9 uh, and read down through verse number 11. Verse number 11 is really where we're going to be spending our time uh, here today. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 9. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you, and desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God. Strengthened with all might, according to His glorious power, unto all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. I don't know about you, but I'm like a master at starting new things. Uh, I love something new. I love something flashy. Uh, I love something, uh, maybe a new app on my phone that's supposed to make my life easier, give me X amount of hours back, uh, maybe a, a different you know, keyboard that I can use to type out you know, new emails and stuff like that. One of the things that I love to do is I love to journal. Uh, and so uh, several years ago, I began to buy really nice journals. I've got uh, some leather-bound journals. I have some linen-bound journals. I have journals with my name stamped on the front in like silver foil. Uh, I, have, I have journals that have a matching pen that goes with it and a matching pencil. Get you a journaling pencil and stuff like that. And uh, I, I get this uh, wild hair from time to time to become a journaler. The problem is, is that I, I do really well for about two or three days, and then it just like falls off altogether. I, I can't get started back, and then I think to myself, "Well, I'll try again next year." And so I have in my office probably I would say a, a, a half a dozen to a dozen journals with about the first four pages filled out, right? Uh, and like it just started, but I couldn't finish it. I, I didn't do well. And my wife, uh, bless her soul, she wants to her her love language is purging. She wants to get rid of everything and throw everything away, right? Uh, like, like when I open up my closet and start throwing stuff away, she's like, I love you so much. I'm so glad I'm married. Uh, but she loves to purge. So she sees my journals in there, which I haven't touched in years. And she's like, I want to throw these away. I'm like, no. Some of them have meaningful entries in them. Like, if I throw it away, I'll lose it forever. And I don't want to lose, like, my thoughts that I had on this given day. And she opens it up and she's like, drank coffee and worked out. Like, that's not a journal entry. Just like, but it meant something to me at the time. Like, just give me this, you know? And so I'm really good at starting to finish uh, I struggle with in certain areas of my life. Unfortunately for many people, the Christian life is really easy to start. Oh, wow, it's exciting. There's all these people. Everybody's happy. Uh, Jesus is going to fix all my problems. And you know, where, where has this been my whole life? This is so good. And then after a little while of walking the Christian life and going through it, there's a series of disappointments and frustrations and uh, priorities, you know, get jumbled up and we lose um, forward momentum. And then it comes to points where it's just like, it's almost a grind to go through it. And then here's the worst part. Some people just fall off. Some people just say, like, hey, I've got too much going on in my life. Just adding church or adding another thing to it uh, just isn't going to work for me right now. And so i, I got to get my life in order and then maybe I'll come back later. That's a, that's a flawed statement in a hundred different ways. But here, here's the issue that happens. Oftentimes I'll go back and look at the, I, I love, because I don't journal, I actually look at old photos. One of the things that I do, and so I'll go back at old photos, like, you know, like this day, on this day, on your phone. I love to look at those and just remember what God's done. And I'll look back at old photos of people that have been baptized here at Huey Hollow. We had our first baptism service in, in uh, the beginning of 2014. And, uh, Tommy Peralta was one of the first people that baptized here at Huey Hollow. He was here. Um, last week we had a baptism. Uh, we had nine people baptized. And one of the, the kids that I baptized was Lauren Smith. I baptized Lauren's mom eight years previously in the exact same place that I baptized Lauren in. And so it's things like that. You look at it and go, that is so awesome. And then you look at those pictures and you're like, Whatever happened to this guy? The last time I saw him, he was at Safeway, and his life was not going well. 
hey, whatever happened to this person? They're no longer in church and, and away from the faith and, and like, man, whatever happened to those people? And as a pastor, I want you to know my heart. I, I, I'm not, you know, hurt or my feelings get hurt because people don't come back to our church or the people must not like me. I'm, I'm way past that. I look at the potential that these people had to know and walk with Jesus and it's squandered and their life as a result hasn't been what it should have been because they haven't walked with Jesus. I don't want that to happen to you. And here's the thing, I don't want it to happen to me. So how do we go the distance in our faith? You take a look at this passage of Scripture, verse number 11. There's two words that are used there that are really, really important to us. The first one of those words is patience. Now, just to help you understand where we're going with this today and kind of set the stage for the rest of today's message. The word patience, as you see it in the Bible, I'm going to venture to say 99% to leave open that 1% margin of error. 99% of the time you see the word patience in the Bible, it doesn't mean what you think it means. The word patience in the Bible doesn't mean that I'm frustrated and I don't like to wait for very long. Uh, for example, uh, if you've uh, ever like waited for like the light to change and the light doesn't change, you finally just run the red light because you know the light's never going to change because you lack patience. That's not what the Bible's talking about. If you're at a crosswalk and you're waiting to turn, you have the green light, but you're having to wait because there's people at the crosswalk, and there's that one person who like catches your eye and sees that you're waiting to turn, and they start walking slower, <laughs> and they look at you with dead in the eye, eye contact, and purposely walk slow while the light turns red behind them, you know, and you're just like, wow, really? Like, seriously. That's not the type of patience that it's talking about, by the way. Here's the thing. There are words for that. It's called pride, selfishness, carnality, whatever you want to say. But the word patience in the Bible, as used in this passage and other passages of Scripture, does not mean that. The Greek word hypermone, which is used here, uh, means the word steadfast endurance. It means the capability to take this for the long haul. To maintain momentum, not for a couple of weeks, but for the rest of your life. That's what that word patience means. Same thing in James chapter 1, Greek word hypermone, uh, there is used in James chapter 1, knowing that the trying of your faith worketh patience. It doesn't mean like, oh, you're not going to be frustrated because your, you know, Domino's delivery driver is too late, or you know, your your Uber driver, uh, you know, is, is five minutes late. Not that kind of patience. The trial of your faith will work the ability for you to be able to stick it out for the long haul. And so here, when he's talking about walking worthy, that you would be strengthened in the, in your might by His glorious power, that you would do so with with patience, steadfast endurance. And, next word, long-suffering. Greek word uh, that's used here for long-suffering is the Greek word macrothumia, which means long-burning. It's like you lit a fuse to something, but the fuse is like 10 million miles long. That's what long-suffering is. Uh, unfortunately, a, a couple of pet peeves that I have is some English translations take the, the word long-suffering and translate it into patience, which takes away the power because long-suffering literally means the capability to suffer long. That's the idea behind it. I can put up with being wronged or mistreated or being treated unkindly or unfairly. I can do that not for a couple of minutes or a couple of days, but I can do it for a couple of decades if I need to, if I can be long-suffering. And you look at that and you go, how in the world am I supposed to put up with people who grind my gears for like decades? How does that happen? I can't do that on my own. You're right, you can't, because long-suffering, this word that's used here, is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. When God is at work in your life and the Holy Spirit's at work in your life, He's going to produce nine things that you can't produce on your own. The first of those, love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. That's what's going to happen when the Holy Spirit's at work in your life. And so, 
If you say, I can't do this, you're correct, you can't. That's why Paul says, I want you to walk with this steadfast endurance. Just maintain steadiness in your faith, in your walk. And I want you to do it with long-suffering. So as we kind of use that to set the stage for today, we need to understand that when God brings you into His family, He makes to you an eternal commitment. His commitment to you is not short-lived. God doesn't just, uh, you know, say He's going to take care of you for a couple of days or, hey, once you get out of this bad spot, I'll take care of you. God makes an eternal commitment to you. When He adopts you into His family, you become a, a son, you become a daughter, and he, now our relationship with Him changes and it's forever different. You see, you and I were born into this world at odds with God. You and I were born the enemies of God. You and I were against God in every possible way. We want to go our own way and do our own thing and, uh, and live life how we want on our own terms. Because we've sinned against God, the God says that we, our sin must be punished. Uh, the Bible tells us that our sin will be punished after this life is over. God's wrath, His punishment against you, will be poured out in a place called hell. It's a real place that burns with real fire for all of eternity. No second chances. That's what I deserve. It's what you deserve. We've broken the law. We have not kept God's commandments. And now we will be punished for that. But because God loves you and God loves me, He doesn't want you to die and be separated from Him. He does not want you to be punished for your sin. So he made a way for you to come to him anyhow, but somebody still had to pay that price, and that person was Jesus Christ. So Jesus came and died when you and I were supposed to die. Jesus was punished when we were supposed to be punished. Jesus suffered God's wrath for the sins of mankind. My sin and yours was placed upon Jesus, and he was put to death because of it. And God now says, because Jesus has paid the price, anybody who believes in him can be forgiven, can be born again. And you need your sins taken care of more than you need your rent paid this month or your kids to start behaving or things like that. You need to have your sins forgiven because when this life is over, you'll stand before God. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die after that, the judgment. Friends, there must be a time, a date, a place in your life where you've been born again, where you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. If you do not know that to be certain, today is your opportunity to put your faith in Jesus. Because when God adopts you, He gives you an eternal commitment that cannot be broken. God makes you His son. He makes you His daughter. And He doesn't kick you out of the family for poor behavior. He doesn't kick you out of the family because you uh, have misbehaved. It's something that He didn't like. He makes an eternal commitment to you. Now, by the same token, the commitment that we make to Him should not be short-sighted either. I'm not making a commitment to God just because uh, you know, I'm in a bad financial bind and it didn't come through for me. I'm not making a commitment to God because my marriage is a wreck and I hope He can fix it. I'm not coming to God because you know, uh, I lost my job and I don't know if I can get another one so maybe God can hook me up. Now, can God do those things? All those things and 10 million more. But that's not the reason we come to God. We come to God because He is God and we are not. We come to Him with a commitment not to walk with Him for a couple of days or a couple of months or for the rest of our life. We come to God not to pray a, a short prayer and go back to our business and, and then move on with our life. One of the things I absolutely abhor about Christianity life, if you will, is this idea that we can just pray a prayer, all of our sin goes away, and then we go back to life as normal. That was never the intention. Uh, it was never the intention to bow your head, close your eyes, say this 30-second prayer, and then you get your ticket punched to heaven and go on about your business. God has never wanted that. He has always wanted real deal, sold-out, committed followers. He's always ever wanted. 
So this idea of, you know, hey, pray this prayer and then you can go back to, you know, getting drunk and getting high and sleeping with your girlfriend, that was never God's intention. It was always God's intention that He would pull us out of our sin and bring us to Himself. That was always what He wanted, always. This goes back even to the Old Testament when the children of Israel, they, they, they came from, like, a lineage of faith, of Abraham, of Abraham's seed, and then they get stuck in slavery uh, in Egypt for 400 years, and then God goes to bring them out of, the, of, uh, of slavery, and they take them to the promised land, and they did almost to the promised land, and Joshua's just like, hey guys, time out for a second, like, you got to figure out who you're going to follow. Verses in your notes here, Joshua chapter 24, verse number 14, now therefore the Lord... Now, now therefore fear the Lord and serve Him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood and in Egypt. And serve ye the Lord. And it seem evil to you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the flood, the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua tells the children of Israel, Hey look, God's sick of this halfway in, halfway out. Either serve Him or don't. If you don't want to serve God, that's fine. Find another God to serve, but for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. So pick a side. Unfortunately, many Christians want to like, well, I'll do the church thing on Sunday or maybe every other Sunday, and then I'll live my life how I want to the rest of the week, uh, the rest of the month. That's not biblical Christianity. That's not the type of Christianity that will take you the distance. Convenience Christianity doesn't last for decades. You want to be locked and loaded, fully committed. You want to be walking with Jesus 20 years from now, 30 years from now. That doesn't happen with a casual kind of sort of commitment to the things of the faith. Jesus tells us uh, this as well. Hey, if any man will come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, follow me. He's not asking for a weekend commitment. He's not asking for a couple hours on Sunday morning. He's asking for your life in entirety. That's what's going to take you to distance. That's what's going to give you the endurance to make it, to know that I'm making a long-term commitment to following Jesus with my life. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die after that, the judgment. For probably at least the last two decades, probably the last 22, 23 years of my life, I have lived with this thought in mind every single day. I want to share it with you and I want to ask you to adopt it. I will stand before God one day for this. It's appointed unto man once to die, after that the judgment, and you will stand before God one day for the way that you live your life. Now that can be either really encouraging or super discouraging, right? Hey, I'm reading my Bible, I'm sharing my faith, I'm going through discipleship, I'm growing, I'm learning more about the Bible than I've ever known my entire life. Uh, you know, I've changed the music that I listen to, I've changed the movies that I watch, I've got a new set of friends that are encouraging me in my faith, man. I'm going to stand before God for this one day. Hey, that's exciting. Wow, what a day that's going to be. Continue to look at porn, dabbling in sin, living a duplicitous life, pretending like I'm a Christian on Sunday, living in my sin, living for the world the rest of the week. I'll stand before God for that one day. And that, that should just guide every single day of your life. And so here's the thing that, that, that I put in my mind. I had a, a, a guy that I went to high school with uh, that passed away when he was probably like 28 or so. And uh, my, my mom from a, my mom still lives in my hometown. She called me and said, oh, you know, so and so passed away. I said, I didn't. Uh, and he was delivering pizzas, no lie, delivering pizzas for Domino's, and like went out to his car and had a heart attack in his front seat and died. He's like 28. And I thought to myself, like, man, like, 
if he dies, like I could die like any second, because I mean, he might be like 20 years invincible, right? Like that's gonna happen, we'll live forever, right? But then it comes to a point where I'd be like, wait, people that I know well are dying? Like my number could be up this weekend. And so I made a commitment from that day forward. I'm gonna live every single day like it's my last, and I'm gonna live every single day with the idea that I'll stand before God for this day. And that's kind of shaped the way that I live my life. Now, I can't get angry at my wife and, and, and yell and scream at her or yell at my kids and be unkind because I'm going to stand before God for that one day. I mean, I'm not going to bed until I make this day right because I'm going to stand before God for this one day. Having that in mind will keep you on track of going the distance. It will keep my heart in the right place because the, the Bible tells us that that there will be a time of reckoning. It should be the desire for every Christian that we finish well. I want to stand before God one day with joy. It's my job as your pastor, and I take this job very, very seriously. I want to help you stand before God one day with joy, not regret. That, that my sole purpose in life, outside of being a husband and a father, is to help you prepare for the day that you stand before Jesus. Because I don't want you to stand before Jesus with regret. I don't want you to stand before a holy God with embarrassment. I want you to say, hey, this right here is what I've lived my entire life for. This is what I've been waiting for. I want to finish well. I don't want to be the guy that like, oh yeah, my pastor when I was in Hawaii one time, you know, he, he's a great preacher, you know, really good looking, super handsome. Amen. <laughs> But he kind of fell off of the faith. I think he's like selling used cars or life insurance or something now. Like, I don't even know what he's doing. I don't, I don't know if he should be still married or not. That would destroy me. Not because I'm concerned about what you think of me, but I'm concerned about what my Savior thinks of me. I want to finish well. I want it to be able to say to me when, when my last breath is here on planet Earth, he could not wait to see Jesus and he was faithful until, until his death. I want that for me, but also want it for you. But that can't happen if there's certain things that are clamoring for attention from my heart that we give to it. So I want to help you to finish well. God is less concerned with how you began and more concerned with how you finish. Let's take a, uh, a poll today amongst everybody this year. How many of you wish that you had been saved at a younger age wish you had walked with Jesus at a younger age or have a period of your life where you're not, we're not walking with Jesus that you wish that you had. Raise your hand if it's you. Probably 75% of us, right? Okay. Good news for you. That's in the past. Scratch it. It's a wash. We're just looking forward now, right? Moses. <laughs> Moses started poorly. Killed an Egyptian, ran off and decided to be a farmer for a while, right? And God says, hey, time to come back. Moses finished well. Now he struck the rock and he wasn't supposed to. He was supposed to speak to it. God said, you can't go into the promised land. But Moses, I'm going to let you go up and see the promised land. And Moses saw the promised land and he went to be with the Lord. Man, he finished well. David, murderer, adulterers, kids hated his guts, and all types of drama and strife and people trying to kill him. David in the end was a man after God's own heart and he finished well. Take Peter. Peter denied Jesus three times. Three times he denied Jesus up to his crucifixion. Jesus died while Peter was still denying him, if you can imagine that. Jesus resurrects and comes while Peter's out with the guys fishing. And he sits down and has breakfast with Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? Oh, of course I love you, Lord. Yeah, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Oh, of course I love you, Lord. Feed my sheep. 
Peter, you love me? Of course I love you. Feed my lambs. He just said, what? Three times you asked me some grieves. And Jesus says, okay, that's good. And then Jesus, what? He sends later. What happens? Holy Ghost comes. Day of Pentecost comes. Who gets to preach the gospel that day? And thousands of people come to faith in Christ. And the church begins. Who does that? Peter. Look, Peter finished well then. He had a, a gang of, of mess-ups along the way. He finished well. The Apostle Paul, hater of Christians, hater of Jesus, persecutor of Christians, consenting into the death of Saul. Man, what happened with him? He got saved on the road to Damascus and his life was never the same. In your notes here, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause, for this reason, I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on Him to life everlasting. Paul says, I am a living example of the grace of God. The one reason that God saved me, for this cause I obtain mercy. For what? To show that God is long-suffering. God should have took me out a long time ago when I was hating Jesus, when I was putting people to death, when I was putting people in prison, when I was destroying people's lives, but He didn't. He was gracious to me so that you could see if He can be gracious with the Apostle Paul, I think He could probably be gracious with me. And he was a pattern. He's an example for you and I to see that God is faithful. And so, man, how you start doesn't really matter. I've got a period of time in my life where I wasn't walking with Jesus. I hate it. I'm embarrassed by it. I didn't grow up in a church that taught me about practical Christian living. I didn't live for Jesus when my teenage years. Uh, I hate it. I'm not proud of it. But I can't stay there. I have to say whatever days I've got left, I've got to make the most for Jesus. That's what it's about. I can't look forward. I can't look backwards. And let me tell you this, the only person who wants to keep you trapped in the mistakes of your past is the devil to discourage you. If you're going to go the distance, you can't look in the rearview mirror, you've got to look up the front windshield. So, how do we finish strong? How do we do that? Verses 9 through 11 basically has the recipe for you and I. And again, we'll talk about finishing strong. That word patience, Greek word hypomone, which means steadfast endurance typically deals with difficult situations, okay? So I need steadfast endurance to just ride it out in this difficult situation I'm in. Macrothumia, the word long-suffering there. Long-suffering, the ability to suffer long, typically deals with interpersonal relationships with other people. So whether it's bad stuff that happens to me or bad people that I'm around, I want to be steady. I want to maintain. I want to be faithful. I want to be serving Jesus 20 years from now. How do we do that? Verse 9 through 11 really walks us through this. First of all, to know what God expects of us and to do it. Verse number 9. That you might be filled with the knowledge of His will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. I know exactly what God wants me to do and I want to obey it. Well, how do I know what God wants me to do? Read the Bible. The Bible is ridiculously clear. I, uh, I find often that when I read the Bible, I'm frustrated because I haven't yet lived up to the expectation that God has for me. So working on it. It's a lifelong process called sanctification. But you want to go the distance, know the Bible, and obey it. Simple as that. Next, I want to encourage you to become a student of wisdom. Solomon wrote the book of Proverbs. Smartest, wisest man to ever live outside of Jesus Christ himself wrote a book on wisdom. 
And he told his boys that he wrote to, with everything that you have, get wisdom and understanding. More precious than silver, more precious than gold is wisdom. The book of Proverbs is a fascinating book. If you've never read it, there's only 31 chapters. You can read one chapter a day with the whole book in a month. It's just nugget of wisdom after nugget of wisdom after nugget of wisdom that will just blow your socks off. But Proverbs speaks of four different categories of people. There's the wise. These are the people who know what they're supposed to do and actually do it. There's the simple. They don't really know what's going on. They're ignorant. They're, they're, they don't know any better. They're just kind of doing what they're doing because it's all they know. There's the fool. They know what's right, but they've chosen to go their own way. And then there's the scorner. They absolutely hate wisdom and hate those that walk in wisdom. So here's what the Bible says. That if you take this simple, they don't know any better. My wife and I, when we got there, we just didn't know any better. We were green as gourds. Uh, we, we just didn't know what we were supposed to do. We hadn't been discipled. We hadn't grown in our faith. Uh, we hadn't been intentional about it. So we just didn't know any better. It wasn't that we were skipping church because we were rebellious and hated God. It's just we didn't know that that was really a priority. We didn't know it was a big deal. We weren't involved in community in the church, not because we hated people or wanted to be selfish, because we didn't know that that was what Christians were supposed to do. But when you take the simple and you give them instruction, the Bible says that they can become wise. It's so a formal life, and I was just like, oh, we're supposed to be in church? Man, every time the doors are open, we'll be there. Done. Hey, we're supposed to be in community with other Christians? Uh, let's join a, a small group. Let's have people over to our house. Let's go over to other people's houses, people we don't know. Have people who cook food that we don't even like. Let's go over there anyways and be nice to them to try to just grow within the other, because that's what Christians are supposed to do. Uh, we, uh, I heard one time a pastor say, uh, if you're a parent, you should pray with your kids every single night. And so I came home that night. It was a Sunday night. I put that in bed and said, hey, bud, before you go to bed, we're going to pray. He goes, is everything okay? <laughs> yeah, everything's fine, bud. Is somebody sick or in the hospital? No. Then why are we praying? Because daddy should have been praying with you a long time ago, but I didn't know you better. But now I know, and so we're going to pray. He's like, oh, okay. And no lie, since that night, we have prayed with every single one of our kids every single night ever since then. Uh, we should know any better than somebody taught us. And we have sought, my wife and I, for the last 24 years that we've been diligently walking with Jesus, have sought to be wise Christians. Now, here's the thing. We're not there yet. And, and again, I want to spend time with other wise Christians because the Bible says if you instruct a wise man, he'll become yet wiser. But a fool hates instruction. A fool hates correction. And you read the entire book of Proverbs, or really the entire Bible if you want to, there are two categories out of those four that are actually blessed. The simple who become wise and the wise. The fool and the scorner always 100% of the time uh, are on the receiving end of God's judgment. So, become a student of wisdom. I want to know what's best. I want to become discerning. I want to become uh, wiser in my life and in my walk with Jesus. Next, never forget the grace that God's given unto you. You might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing. I need to remember where I came from. I need to remember that I was once lost without Jesus. I need to remember that I was once a, a single man with no direction in life. I need to remember that I was once a, a newlywed who had absolutely no clue what to do with his life. But God gave me his son to save me from my sins. He gave me his Holy Spirit inside of me to help me to grow and to know him and to guide me into all truth. He's given me his word so that I can grow and his lamp can be a light and a path to my feet. 
He's given me His church, a place of community where my brothers and sisters that are not perfect as I am not perfect. We can grow together in our faith. And I need to remember if it weren't for God's Son, God's Spirit, God's Word, and God's church, I would be absolute gutter trash today worthy of nothing whatsoever. I need to remember where I came from. But without Him, I am nothing. It's a walking worthy means I recognize what I've been given and I want to steward it. I want to invest it well. Next, I'll encourage you to commit to a life of fruitfulness. Verse number 10, it's my work worthy of the Lord and all pleasing me fruitful in every good work. I want my life to be categorized by good fruit. And I have to ask myself from time to time, is what I'm doing, is what I'm involved in, is it bringing me forth good fruit or is this a waste of my time? I'm going to put my life where I don't have time to waste. I need to invest my time well. I want to invest my, my life into my children, into my wife, into my family, into my church family, into my friends, into the, the guys that I know at the gym and, and things like that. i got to ask myself, is there fruit here? Because if not, I have to focus on where I can get fruit from. Because it's a job for every Christian to be fruitful. So again, that goes back to the wisdom portion of that. Next. Lean on God's strength, not our own. We talked about this last week. Your strength is finite. You're going to run out of gas at some point, and you need strength greater than yourself, and God has given it to you uh, in as much supply as you want, that you would be strengthened, verse number 11 says, by the power of His might, not our own. Next, this is important in verse number 11, that we would settle in for the long haul. This Christian life thing is not something that's going to turn your life around in seven days. It's not a quick fix. We, we love quick fixes, don't we? I mean, you walk down the... I was waiting to get my prescriptions at Long's the other day, and your, the pickup line is in basically the dietary supplement aisle, right? And there's the, you know, 14-day cleanse, and besides the seven-day cleanse. Like, what, you want to do it in seven or 14? Well, of course I want to do it in seven. No, so the, but the seven-day cleanse is more expensive than the 14-day cleanse because more results, twice, quicker, faster. And I thought to myself, there's no lasting change that can take place in your life over a course of seven days. It takes longer than that to, to change your life and to turn it around. You don't go from you know, being 385 pounds to being you know, 165 pounds with a six-pack in seven days. You just don't do it. You know? It takes time. Christians many times want a quick fix. Well, the marriage is a wreck, and we came to church for like three times, and like, my marriage didn't get any better, so we quit. It wasn't working. Yeah. It's like saying I went to the gym one time and walked on the treadmill and watched you know, friends for 30 minutes and I, I didn't see you change in my life. You did it once. You've got to commit to this. You've got to settle in for the long haul. That's why he says that you would walk this walk with patience, steadfast endurance. This isn't going to be a quick fix. It's not going to be a seven-day turnaround. But I'm telling you this. You can't change your, your, your destination overnight because you change your direction overnight. I can set my heart in the right trajectory and go the right direction and things will begin to turn around me when I follow the correct path. So you can begin a path to change today, but you need to settle in because the end result that you want out of this is going to take some time to get. So settle in for the long haul. Verse number 11 tells us that we need to become comfortable being uncomfortable. We don't need steadfast endurance if it's all downhill, right? We don't need steadfast endurance if it's super easy. It just... Man, just sit back and relax and let the good times roll. That's not the Christian life. It's difficult. There comes a point where it's just like, okay, this is uncomfortable, but you have to say, okay, I'm going to push through the discomfort. The 10-minute uh, reading time here is probably super uncomfortable for us introverts, right? But some things like, hey, 
you meet some really cool people when you talk to them, right? You hear people's stories, it's like, oh, wow, that's super cool. Or like, hey, uh, maybe we grew up not too far away from somebody. And some people in the uh, first service, some people who are here on vacation who, who live in a town that was next to, to his hometown. It's just like, how does that happen? You don't get that unless you actually spend time eyeball to eyeball talking with people. It's uncomfortable, it's maybe awkward for you, but become comfortable being uncomfortable. Uh, for me, uh, when Angel and I first decided to start walking with Jesus, it was the hardest thing for me to talk to other people. Because I thought to myself, I don't know you, I don't want to know you, I don't need to know you. You have nothing to offer me that I don't already have, uh, I don't need this. But then I realized it wasn't really about me anyways, it was about actually showing the love of Jesus to other people. That's what they kind of, kind of turned the corner for me. They're like, hey, I might not benefit from this, but maybe I could invest in someone else and pour into someone else. Maybe somebody who's kind of walks into church for the first time, they're kind of looking around and feel awkward, not sure if they're supposed to sit anywhere, or kind of looking for, and say, hey, man, come over here and sit by me. Maybe I could set them at ease and make them feel welcome, make them feel the love of Jesus so they can be open to hearing what God has to say from his word. Maybe God can use me in that way. And then, man, it's like a, a, a switch flipped in me. Man, stop being so selfish. And so that was super uncomfortable to me. It still is. Every time I share my faith, I still get nervous. I remember the first time I actually went and shared, to share the gospel with somebody. We, uh, and so I went over to Mark and Susie Hansen's apartment. Uh, they lived in Coast City at the time. We went over their house and uh, the pastor told us, hey, they want to get saved. You can go over there and just tell them how to get saved. Sure, it's easy, right? We go over there and we talk for three hours about everything under the sun and never talk about the Bible, Jesus, and the gospel once. And came to the point where they're like, our kids are really sleeping. They got school. Can can we pick this up another time? Like, yeah, sure. We got in the car. I was like, I'm an absolute utter failure. I was just scared. I was just scared. I wouldn't have the answers. They'd think I was weird. They would reject the gospel. They would reject me. I'd become the weirdo Jesus guy that came over to the house. They tried to push them into doing something they didn't want to do. It was just like, oh. But I'm coming to find out they really, the next Sunday they came back and they asked the pastor, hey, could somebody just tell us how we can get saved? And it's like, yeah. And if you want to have a second round at it, I did. And I had the opportunity to lead Mark and Susie to, to Jesus. They first couple of other Christ in my life. I got nervous doing it. And you know, I knew they wanted to be saved. Hey, guess what? You think, like, oh, it just gets easier over time. I've been sharing my faith now for two and a half decades. It never gets easier. I still get nervous. I still think, like, oh, this person's going to think I'm weird or they're going to think I'm awkward, you know, or like, Man, I'm going to invite somebody to church, they're going to find out that I'm a pastor, and it's going to be a weird bottle between us, and people ask me what I do for them, and I say I'm a pastor, and they're going to be a weirdo, it's just like, oh, man. And all these things go through your mind, but then there comes a point where it's just like, hey, i got to put myself in a place where the uncomfortable is actually where I need to be. This is where the growth happens. This is where the growth takes place. I'm trying to grow in a multitude of areas of my life, and for, uh, for me, I'm trying to steward my health well. Uh, I used to, to run a lot uh, back then, about 15 years ago. I run marathons and triathlons, and thoroughly enjoyed it. And I looked at my running logs the other day, and I haven't ran more than one mile in, since 2019. And I was just like, wow, I am a sluggard. Uh, and so uh, I thought to myself, you know what I'm going to do? I don't enjoy running. It's not fun for me. Big guys like me should not run unless someone's chasing them. Uh, I'm going to get a shot. And so yesterday, I laced up my, my uh, shoes. My workout shoes, I don't even have running shoes anymore, workout shoes. And I decided I'm going to go to Alamo Beach Park and just make, make a lap and call it good. And my, my goal was three miles. I got to like three quarters of a mile and thought I was going to die. Um, like I was going to scrawl on my arm with my fingernail like Angela King 808, like calling piece of emergency. I'm totally going to die on this run. 
Um, but I said, I'm just going to push through and I made it to two and a half miles and almost collapsed. I was going to do three, uh, but I knew somebody had to preach today and, and yeah, that guy could preach. And so I pushed through. It was hard. I did not enjoy it. It was not fun. But I, I, after I was over, I was glad that it was done. And at some point this week, I'm going to get out and I'm going to lace up my shoes and I'm going to do it again. Because growth never takes place in your comfort zone. I've got to be willing to step into a place where I need to lean on somebody else's strength. I need to lean on someone else's endurance to endure the difficult times so that I can see growth in my life. And so, so many times my growth is robbed because I want to be comfortable. Uh, this means finding a manageable, steady pace. Steadfast endurance, or patience. Steady endurance, settling for the long haul. Christian life isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. It's actually more like an ultra marathon where you don't know where the finish line is, right? You say, oh, Christian life's not a sprint, it's a marathon. The idea of a marathon is I know where the finish line is. I can push hard if I need to as long as I see the finish line. The problem is I don't know if the finish line is like this Saturday or like 40 years from now. But I got to keep pushing anyway with the same intensity, with the same passion. How do you do that? The only way that you do it is find a manageable pace. Start, start small. It's, um, it's tough when you see newer Christians, they come hot out the gate sometimes, right? They're so excited to be saved. They're so excited to know Jesus. And they've got all these new friends that they've met. And they're like, oh, I was reading the Bible for three hours and I fell asleep with my Bible on my chest. And I woke up the next morning without my alarm clock. And I spent an hour in prayer and picked up my Bible reading right where I left off at. read for another two hours. So, okay. That's awesome. I'm super pumped for you. Now, and I came to a small group on Tuesday. I love that. So I came to a small group on, on Wednesday. I love that. I went to singles on Friday night. I came to outreach and cleaned the church on Saturday. And I came to, to the morning services. I love the 8 o'clock services, but I came to the 10 o'clock services. Like, hey, dial it back because you can't do this forever. I love the intensity and the fire and the excitement. It's like, hey, this new life, I want to grab it by the, the bull by the horns and get her done. I love that. The problem is, is that you can't maintain that. And there comes a point where it's just like, oh, I only read my Bible for 20 minutes today and I'm a backslider and God probably doesn't love me anymore. And, you know, I couldn't make it to the Tuesday small group. I only could make it to two small groups instead of three this week. And so God's probably not happy with me now. But you need to find something that you can maintain. Because the majority of Christians, what happens is you can't keep that peak performance and so then you just blow it all off and do nothing. Uh, what? I can't spend two hours in the Bible so I just won't read anything. Uh, you know, my time in prayer, I used to be able to pray for 15, 20 minutes, and like I can't pray for that long anymore, so I just don't pray anymore. No, start back at a manageable, sustainable pace. If you did not read your Bible regularly this past week, make a goal this week, I'm going to read one chapter of the Bible a day. Just one. If you don't know where to start, Proverbs. Wisdom, you'll, you'll choke on the amount of wisdom that's there. You can't even swallow it all. Proverbs has 31 chapters in it. You can read one every single day. Today's uh, February the 4th. Read Proverbs 4 today. Mark it off. Tomorrow's the 5th. Read Proverbs 5. One chapter a day. Well, that's not really a lot. Hey, one chapter a day is more than zero chapters a day. Every day of the week. Hey, pray for 60 seconds this week. 60 seconds isn't going to make a difference. It makes a lot more difference than zero seconds, which is what you did last week. So just find a pace, maintain that, and then grow from there. When you get to the point where I'm like, hey, my schedule's freed up. Hey, I want to get up early in the morning to spend time in the Word. Then maybe I can read more if I want to. Maybe I spend more time in prayer. Hey, maybe I'm not listening to a podcast on the way to work on my commute. I'm going to spend that time in prayer instead. You're going to find out what works for you. But you have to start somewhere. You have to start at a manageable pace. 
That's what steadfast endurance means. It doesn't mean I'm up and down and I'm up and down. I'm all over the place. And sometimes I'm just going to quit and check out. You can't do that. The other thing that's important too about this is you have to run your own race. I remember um, the very first race that I ever ran was a 5K in Huntington Beach. Uh, it was almost 20 years ago. And uh, I remember I had been training really hard for this because I'd never run before. Uh, again, prior to this, I probably hadn't run more than a mile and a half and then maybe two decathlons a year. Uh, and so I was like, I'm going to run three miles without stopping. And I trained for maybe like six or eight weeks. And I was super pumped. We got there on the first day, starting line. And uh, I'm going out. I mean, I, I'm, I'm trucking along. I'm, I'm doing really well. And about, you know, the mile mark, these 70-year-old ladies, like a pack of them, just like blow past me. And I look behind like, I am so slow that I got passed. I'm like 25. I got passed by a bunch of 70-year-old ladies. Like, I am worthless. I shouldn't even be out of here. I should get in shape so that I could like at least stay with them because they're on the next level. And then like they got matching shirts on and matching hats and stuff like that. And they got like cute little nicknames on the back of their shirts and stuff like that. Well, come to find out, this is a pack of seven-year-old ladies that run like three races a weekend every weekend. And so they got like a van that they'll load up into and go from race to race. Like everybody knows them. And like, oh, that's what they do. Like they do this like for fun. I'm doing it here with like a major life accomplishment milestone. You know, they're doing this for fun on the weekends, you know. But the problem was I was comparing myself to them and saying, I am worthless. No, no, no. Two people in your life you need to compare yourself to. Two people only. Hear this. You need to compare yourself to Jesus. And you will fall short 100% of the time, which keeps you humble and lets you know that you still got ways to make it before you're like Jesus. Second person you compare yourself to is yourself, where you were three months from ago, six months ago, six years ago. Compare yourself to that, and if you see growth, you're on the right track, keep on trucking. The problem comes is when I compare myself to my walk when I was in college. Oh, I was, I was in a Bible study on Tuesday nights in college. We had prayer nights where we wouldn't even sleep. We just pray through the nights. And every Saturday we would fast and then share our faith with all of our students. Hey, if that was you in college, that should be you like now. You don't get to say like, oh, I, I peaked back. Yeah, no, this is a steadfast endurance where I continue to grow in my faith. So Compare yourself with other people. The Bible says that's not wise because I'll always find people that are better than you. I'll always find people that are worse than you. And pride wants to compare myself to other people and how much better I am than they are and all that other stuff. Not helpful. Next, if we're going to be long-suffering, we have to be gracious and long-suffering with others. Many people have quit on the faith. Many people have quit on Jesus because of other people who did them wrong, said something to hurt them. Uh, they disappointed them in some way or something like that. And let me just tell you this. If you've never been hurt by church people before, you haven't been in church long enough. Simple as that. It's made up of a bunch of sinners who recognize that we need God's grace. I've been people before who's like, oh, we're just kind of taking it slow because last church we were at, we got burned. And, you know, not really trustworthy pastors because my last pastor did X, Y, and Z. And really hurt our, hurt our church. Hey, I get it. I get it. I understand that. But there comes a point where we have to say, hey, I'm going to choose to forgive and move on and let God do His work. Uh, because, look, if, if people start, oh, I got burned at church one time. Yeah, I went to Panda Express one time and got food poisoning, but I still go back for orange chicken because it's good, right? And you're like, what's the spiritual application? You might get hurt by church people at some point, but you've got to keep coming back because what we got is good, right? So the idea here is this, is that I have to be long-suffering because if you're the type of person that's going to keep score on everything, first of all, your scorecard is going to fill up. 
uh, and you're going to be really, really ugly. You're going to be angry, you're going to be bitter, you're going to be uh, an absolute chore to be around. And you don't want to be that person. Secondly, the important thing, too, is that God's love, the Bible says, thinketh no evil. I'm not going to keep a scorecard of you on the wrong things that you've done, though. The Bible also says that love keeps no record of wrongs. So I'm going to think the best of you, and I'm not going to remember all the wrong things that you've done. I'm going to choose to give grace and do wrong suffering. What does that look like? That means that you say something to me that's unkind. You say something that was mean or ugly to me that hurts my feelings. And I'm just going to say, hey, you're probably just having a bad day. Just going through a lot of stuff. I'm going to give some grace today and just choose to forgive. Now, next time I see him, I'm going to give him a hug and thumb alone and let him pray for him. Maybe I'm text him this week and say, hey man, I've been praying for you. I hope you're having a great week this week. Because he, that's not him. That's out of character for him. I want to think the best of him. As opposed to, yeah, he said that today and like two weeks ago he said this. Did, you, did he say anything like that to you? Oh, he said something like that to you too. Now we're gossiping and keeping the record of wrong. Yeah, that's so destructive. And let me just tell you this, disunity and bitterness are some of the, the devil's tools that he uses to divide and split families, split, split people, and split churches. It's got no place for you. So we don't keep a record of wrongs. We choose to be long-suffering. We choose to be gracious with people. Uh, now, people who have been unkind uh, to me, and I see you at, at Walmart, I'm going to give you a hug and tell you that I love you. I have no, uh, no desire to keep a record of wrongs or, or be ugly to people who have been ugly to me. I don't have time for that because I have to run this race for the long term, and I can't do that when this, the people that I don't like or the people that have wronged me just keep piling up on me. i got to choose to flush that stuff and let it go one person at a time and continue to keep my eyes on Jesus. So we have to be gracious. We have to be long-suffering with other people. This is not your notice, but it's really important to note, too, at the end of verse number 11. There's joy in long-term faithfulness as well. You see uh, verse uh, number... Uh, 11. Strengthen with all might according to the glorious power and all patience and long-suffering with joyfulness. There are times in the Christian life if you're going to run this race and you're going to do it for the rest of your life that, that it's going to be hard. You're going to feel like it's hard to keep moving, like you're trying to run through like heavy mud and you're getting stuck and you're having to grind it out. There will be times in the Christian life where you just got to grind it out for a week or so. I don't want to read my Bible, but I know I need to. I don't want to go to church, but I know I need to. I don't want to join my small group this week, but I know that I need to. I don't want to pray, but I know that I need to. You just got to grind it out and do what's right. But if you're grinding it out for months and months and months and months, something's not right somewhere. Because the Christian life should produce joy in us. And if I'm walking in the Spirit, and I'm doing what God commands, and I'm being filled up by the Word of God, and I'm being in community with other believers, my life should produce, Galatians chapter 5, verse number 22, Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, and temperance. If those things are absent, something's not right in here, and I need to get it checked out. Just like if you have, you know, an ulcer that will not go away, what do you do? You make a doctor's appointment, you get checked out by your doctor. If you have a spiritual issue that's ailing you, and you can't seem to fix it, you need to reach out to your pastor or another wise Christian in the church that you can lean on and trust and say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Would you help me? Because like my joy's gone. Oftentimes people talk with me about struggling with you know, depression and long-term sadness and things like that. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a counselor. I'm, I'm just a pastor. That's it. But physical issues need physical solutions. Emotional issues need emotional solutions. 
spiritual solutions, spiritual problems require spiritual solutions. I'm a spiritual guy. When you struggle with sin, it steals your joy. And so when I talk with people about depression, no lie, I ask them the first question. Hey, is there any sin in your life that you habitually commit that you have not made right with God, that you have not forsaken and repented of? Nine times out of ten, they say yes. Okay, deal with that first, and then go talk to your primary care physician, get a blood panel done, then go talk to your therapist and uh, talk about all the issues that you got going on. But you need to deal with that first, because you will never have joy when sin is in your life. It steals it every time. So again, i got to check my heart first. We're complicated beings. I'm a pastor, and I will look at things from a spiritual perspective. So what causes us to quit the race? What causes us to fall off in our faith? What are the things that we need to protect against to make sure that we don't quit on Jesus, uh, that we don't lose heart, that we don't lose faith? I want to be able to look you up a decade from now and ask you how you're doing. And you tell me, hey, I'm doing great. Hey, here's something that I, I shared with my small group this week. Hey, pray for this coworker that I have that needs to be saved. Hey, here's a, a new guy that I'm discipling in his faith. Pray for him that he'd be able to grow. I, I want to look you up in a decade from now and hear that you're continuing to grow in your faith and you're pouring into the life of other people. Somebody came to uh, the church service this morning uh, at the invitation of a friend who was a member of Huikala eight years ago. And she texted four ladies in our church and said, hey, my friend is coming today. Will you please be on the lookout for her? And my wife was one of those people, and then she shared that with me. This person comes in, and I was like, oh, are you so-and-so? She's like, yeah, everybody knows me already. She's like, yeah. Because she has a friend whose life was touched here almost a decade ago that's still walking with Jesus, who said, oh, you're in Hawaii. You've got to go to Hui College. So, again, I want, to be, I want you to be that type of person. How do you do that? There's some things that you have to guard against because these things will steal your endurance, they'll steal your joy, and they'll suck the life right out of you. First of all, sin. We've already talked about that. Sin cannot coexist with joy. Sin cannot coexist with God's blessing. Sin cannot coexist with God's strength and His power. Get rid of it. Be done with it. Confess it. Forsake it. Lay it down. Don't ever pick it up again. Move forward. And again, you can sing a sad song about, like, oh, I feel bad about the years that I wasted dealing with XYZ sin. Done. Repent of it. Move on. Be done with it. God's looking forward. Sin will steal your endurance. It will steal your joy. Next, selfishness. I want you to tell you, tell you personally, for me, these last several weeks have been uh, frustrating on a, a multitude of levels. But for me, I feel bad as your pastor because every week I have to tell you, I'm not sure where we're going to meet next Sunday, but I promise you we'll meet somewhere. Uh, hey, you know, check your, your emails, check your, your church center app to find out where we're going to meet, what times. Hey, register for a church service. And so when you go on the register, what well, service is full or not enough kids to uh, space available there. And I hate having you register for church every week because that's so lame. And as a pastor, I, I feel really badly for that. But at the same time, I look at this and I say, if the worst we have to do is go on an app and click a button to say we're going to a certain service, that's not real sacrifice, right? When we, um, when we started in Utah, we, we didn't have a parking lot, we still don't, uh, but we had, uh, had looked at ways that we could allow people to park, and there was a, a parking lot like two blocks away that was going to rent us parking spaces on Sunday morning that we could, could use on Sundays when we had services. And I thought to myself, like, okay, you know, I'm thinking in my mind, uh, we'll, you know, we'll move anybody's excuse why they wouldn't want to come here. Uh, we're going to get, like, um, you know, trolleys that we're going to run two blocks away to these parking structures. Or we'll get those, like, motorized golf carts you can sit, like, rows of people on. We can put Christian music on it, like, like a welcome wagon team, like, their job, get people pumped up and happy, take them up to the parking garage. And no lie, here's what I thought to myself through, through all that. I thought to myself, do I really want to create 
a church culture where we can't be inconvenienced by walking two blocks to church. You know, people in the Philippines like travel like six hours one way to get to church, and like we're gonna like run a trolley for people on two blocks. And I thought to myself, I don't want to create an entitled church family that feels like, well, it's too far for me to walk. I don't want to go. So, but here's the thing: that selfishness creeps in. Well, God, I don't have to register for a church service. I'm just not going to go. Well, the 9.30 service is full, and I'm not going to 11 because I only eat, eat lunch at like noon. So like, I'm totally not going to the 11 o'clock service. So I'm not going to go. Like, my, my kids don't go get the full super church experience because there's only like 12 kids in the class. So I'm probably not going to go. And we create this selfish mentality. I'm just going to tell you, I've been there before and I understand it. Like, hey, I don't like the cookies that they serve. The coffee that they have is trash. It comes out of the Keurig. You know, people here don't like me. People here think that I'm weird, and I already know that I'm weird. I don't need them to judge me for it. You know, uh, my kids. You know, the teacher in my kids' class is kind of quirky and weird. And so, like, I don't, I don't even know if this is for me. But the problem was, is that it was all about me. Here's the, the the thing you need to get about the Christian life. The Christian life has never been about you. It's all been always been about the glory of God. Amen. Always. So when you and I make it about ourselves, then we're going to set ourselves up for disappointment. Then we're not going to be able to stay anywhere because, like, oh, I went to this church for a while, for a couple of years, until somebody takes me off, and then I went to another church and somebody disappointed me, and I went over to another church, and the pastor, he just preaches to me, and I went to another church, and they didn't even have a parking lot. They walk, like, walk away and walk to church. And you find that you never really put down roots anywhere because you never found what you were looking for. As opposed to like, hey, where does God want me to be? Where can I grow in my faith? Where can I put down roots for the long term? Next, self-confidence. Here's what happens. You and I, many times, we come to Jesus because we have a crisis. And that's good because God drives us to times of crises so that we'll, we'll run to Him. But then God gets us through that rough path that we're in where it's like, oh, I think I'm good from here. Man, I was praying every single day when my daughter was in the hospital. When she got released from the hospital, so I don't have to pray anymore. It doesn't work that way. Because then what happens is we have confidence in ourselves. Oh, I got it from here. You know, God, I'll call you if I need you, but I think I got it from here. I need you back here, but you came through. I don't need that anymore. And so the problem is, is that God will either bring us to the end of ourselves to show us how badly that we need him, or we'll succeed without God thinking that we did it ourselves. Either way, it's super, super problematic. So we can't allow self-confidence. I need to remember every single day, God, I need you today more than I needed you yesterday. The problems that I'm facing today are so great that I cannot do it on my own. I need your help. Because at what point we become self-confident? I don't need the church. It doesn't add any value to me. I don't need the pastor to preach. I, I tell me all the time, I don't need to come here and preach. I've read the Bible myself. That's not how it works. Christians for the last 2,000 years have gathered together on Sunday to hear God's Word taught so that we can not only hear it, but we can ingest it and meditate on it and then live it out. They've done that for the last 2,000 years. A lot of them do that. Oh, okay. Sounds great. Self-confidence ruins you every single time. Next. Worldliness. Jesus says this, you can't serve God and man and own money. You've got to pick a side. No man can serve two masters, Jesus said. Joshua tells us the same thing uh, that we saw earlier in Joshua where he says, hey, pick a God that you're going to serve, but we're going to serve the God of the Bible. Book of Revelation, church to the, Jesus uh, speaking to the church of Laodicea says to them, you're neither hot nor cold, but you're, what's the word? Lukewarm. You're in the middle. He says, because of that, I'll spew you out of my mouth. The word spew is only found one time in the Bible. It means to vomit because I'm disgusted. 
So God Himself is like, if you were cold, I could totally handle that. If you're hot, I could totally handle that. But you want to live in the middle here somewhere? There's no middle here. You either live for Jesus or you don't. Pick a side. Simple as that. You don't want to live for Jesus? God's like, that's fine. I'll do what I need to do without you. But you'll miss out on the blessings and contentment that comes from walking with me. But I really want you to walk with me. But so many times we are enamored by the things of the world. And worldliness kind of coexists with a love for Jesus. Jesus says, if you love the world, then you don't love me. And what happens many times is Christians get enamored by the things of the world and they, they chase after what the world has to offer and they, they, they leave Jesus behind. Demas was spoken of favorably throughout the book of Acts as a traveling companion of Paul's, but then to get to the epistles of Paul's writing letters, he says, uh, Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world. Hey, Demas isn't with me no more because Demas is like, what? Is the Christian life just like sitting around after we've been in prison for doing what God told us to do? Like waiting to die? Like, Paul, you're going to be beheaded by, by Nero. Worst case scenario, you get crucified like your Savior did. Like, are we supposed to sit around wait to die? And Demas is like, I'm out. i got better things I could do with my life. You just sit around wait for death. So Demas chased after the things that the world had to offer. And Paul lamented that. And so, if you have a lust for the things of the world, the things of God aren't going to be appealing. There has to come a point where we find God and following Him as the most beautiful thing in the world to us, that the other things are not as appealing to us any longer. My, my daughter, Matilda, was watching a show the other day. Um, she, she watches the most random shows. But I walked in, and she's watching a show. It's, I don't even know what the name was. It wasn't the box one, which is absolutely awful. It was another plastic surgery uh, you know, show that they bring these people on. I said, hey, turn that off. And she's like, what? It's not anything bad. It might not even be anything overtly simple. But you know what it says to a 15-year-old girl? Oh, you got that bump in your nose? We can totally smooth that out for you. Oh, your nostrils flare up too much? We can totally bring those down for you. Oh, your lip uh, isn't fat enough? We can totally inject that right there. Oh, you want to you know, shave off your cheekbones? We can totally do that for you. Oh, while we're at it, why don't we take out that cellulite that's around your thighs? And you come to this idea that everything can be fixed by going to some doctor and paying a couple of thousand dollars because everybody's doing it. I said, I don't want you watching that. You might say, well, it's just a television show. It's planting seeds in the mind of a 15-year-old girl who's probably already body conscious about the way she looks and compared to other people. It plants seeds that if you don't like what you see, you can always fix it. That doesn't coexist with I am fearfully and wonderfully made by my Savior exactly how He created me. I am loved by God how I am exactly how He created me. Those two messages don't jive so worldliness will suck you away from the faith and the quickness. Next, desire for comfort. If you want to be comfortable, the Christian life will be hard. If you desire to, to have everything your way, it's going to be difficult because Christianity isn't easy. But I'm telling you this, it's easier than life without Jesus. Guaranteed. I've seen people do it both ways. I've tried to do it both ways myself. I've tried to live for myself, live for the world, live for money, live for materialism. And I was greatly disappointed with what I found. But I've also lived for Jesus. I've found the greatest contentment and hope that I've ever found in my entire life. And I want to pour my life into it. This next one, we've already talked about it briefly, but disappointment with others will cause you to, your faith to wane. Here's the thing I, I need to say to you as well. If I ever wrong you, would you do me a huge favor before you get decide to write a Yelp review, the Lord review, or just leave? Do me a favor. Come to me and say, Pastor, you said this, and it was hurtful to me. Pastor, you did this. I'm disappointed in you. 
Pastor, you did this and you sinned against me. Please, please do that for me. That will give me the opportunity to repent to you and make things right. I'm not perfect, but I never will be. I will disappoint you. I will frustrate you. I will say things that might be unkind or hurtful to you. Please give me the luxury, the liberty, as your brother in Christ, to be able to make things right. That's all I want to do. Because disappointment with others just sets you up for failure in the future. See, all Christians are fake. All Christians are hypocrites. All Christians are phonies. You know, uh, the pastor said he would pray for me, but I never heard from him. The pastor said he was going to call me, he never called me. Uh, the pastor said he was going to do this, he never did that, he let me down. That means all Christians are fake, or no pastors can be trusted. Hey, if that happens, please let me know. I want to make it right, because you can't allow disappointment with other people to impact your relationship with Christ. Finally, the number one killer of everything in your life, look out for it, is pride. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride masks itself in so many ugly, nasty, awful ways that we can't even discern it right away. What? I don't really need to, to be there. I know what pastor's going to preach on any this Sunday anyways. That's pride. I don't really need to go to a small group. I mean, nobody there is as, as spiritual as I am anyway. That's pride. I don't want to share my prayer requests with a bunch of people who aren't going to pray for me anyways. That's pride. I don't really need discipleship. I've been saved my whole life. Pride. Uh, so again, pride manifests itself in like, I want people to think I'm better than I truly am. I don't like it when other people get ahead and I don't. Um, pride is just really ugly and it sets you up for failure in the whole life. If you got strife in your marriage, I promise you this, pride is, is lurking at the root somewhere. You got strife with your children, you got strife with your co-workers, you got strife with your neighbor. Guarantee you, only by pride comes contention with the Bible says. So look, you look out for it. I want to look you up 10 years from now and hear that you're still walking with Jesus. I want, to, I want you to get to the judgment seat of Christ one day and stand there with joy, uh, having seen your face, Savior face to face and, and know that you're with Him for all eternity. That's going to require on the front end, though, that you live with this patience, this steadfast endurance. I'm going to keep plugging along, plugging along day by day, being faithful. People might disappoint me and be frustrating with me. I'm going to give a lot of grace. I'm going to be long-suffering. I'm going to protect my heart and protect my life from things that would get me off track and just keep my eyes fixed upon Jesus. The most important thing is if you're here today you don't know for sure that you're saved, you need to be born again because if you die without Jesus and without being saved, you will not stand before God before you go to heaven. You will stand before God before you're punished in eternity. Nobody wants that, myself and me included. So put your faith in Jesus today. He is the only way to heaven. You must trust in Him. For those of us that are Christians this week, let's walk worthy, leaning on the strength that God gives us and walking with that steadfast endurance this week. So with